0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Ottawa occupation may be clear, but this is just the beginning of the healing process. Where do we go from here? We'll we'll discuss that. After much harassment in Ottawa, many are targeting mainstream media as part of the occupation. What is the state of journalism, and where are we going with it? And Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News, will join us with the latest development between Russia and Ukraine. All coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's uh, swing back to yesterday and the vote uh, with the Emergencies Act that was held finally late into the evening with a lot of preamble from all of the uh, affected parties and all of the leaders over the last uh, little while. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says the government needs to reflect on the role of misinformation and foreign funding in destabilizing Canada's life. Uh, once the crisis related to the anti-mandate protests is passed. Now, during a conference yesterday morning, uh, the Prime Minister was asked if any of the powers invoked as part of the Federal Emergencies Act could become permanent.
1: There needs to be a reflection on foreign funding of, of uh, illegal actions uh, in our country designed to disrupt or destabilize our democracy. There have to be reflections on our ability to keep our borders uh open and free-flowing and protect critical infrastructure like uh the seat of our democracy
0: uh just to, to, for those who may have fallen asleep i had not noticed because it did go on for quite some time vote yesterday uh the, the emergencies act did pass by a vote of 185 to 151 uh, with support uh, for the uh, the legislation from the NDP and from, uh, of course, from Elizabeth May from the Green Party as well. So let's talk about the ramifications and let's talk about some of the uh, politicking that went on and a number of other stories that are coming out of Ottawa in the last little while. And to do that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Dr. Turnbull, of course, is the director of, the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, always a pleasure. Hope you had a good weekend.
2: Hey, Bill, I did have a good weekend and thanks for having me on.
0: Well, oh, it's good to have you here to get some perspective on this. How are things in the nation's capital this morning? By the way,
2: uh, so today should be a turn the page kind of day in a lot of ways. Like there, uh, a number of the blockades have been removed, and there's no, um, you know, no convoy here anymore. And so, a lot of the businesses are going to be reopening today, and people are just being encouraged to to go down and show your support, you know be take part in things that we haven't been able to do in ottawa for a while so it should be a good day
0: let me get your perspective on some of the politicking and the wordsmithing that went on uh um, we'll start with the prime minister we just played a clip of his news conference from yesterday morning uh he's been criticized in many many circles these days not necessarily for the content of what he was saying but for the tone that uh, some suggesting that, that he was throwing gasoline onto an existing fire. Uh, and this is not just yesterday, but I mean, over the, the course of the last uh, 08 or 10 days, I guess, if you listen to some of the other uh, commentators and of course, some of the opposition parties, what what's you read on it?
2: I think out of the gate, he had that comment about this being um, the, the, the fringe, essentially. And he made comments about tinfoil hats and things like that. And I reread some of that yesterday. And I mean, in some ways... I think I know what he was trying to do, right? He was trying to put distance from, you know, between himself and the majority of Canadians who have gotten vaccinated, you know, and don't have a, you know, have found a way to make that work for them, even if they don't love it, they've still done it. And so he's trying to say, look, the majority of us have 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 accepted how we have to handle COVID. This is a very small minority of people who don't, so let's not get pulled into that. But of course, I think what he missed was an opportunity to think, more deeply about, okay, who are some of the people who have followed the rules, gotten their vaccine, done everything they were asked to do, and are still being left behind in some way. They're still very worried about what the economic future holds for them and their family. And so in a way, I like I, I think I know what he was trying to do, but it's not just the tinfoil hats. <laughs> like it's There are much larger forces at work here.
0: Yeah, and and that's the sense I got as well that uh, that I think a lot of Canadians were agreeing with the message, uh, but uh, language words matter, you know, and language matters and tone matters, and and uh, mm-hmm. you know I, I I don't know I'm not going to suggest as some of the opposition our members are that Trudeau's comments actually uh, extended this this crisis beyond that, uh, but there's there's I guess a time and a place for that kind of rhetoric, and I don't think this was uh, neither the time nor the place, and we noticed that yesterday. Uh, to a certain extent anyway. He seems to have toned things down a little bit anyway, although you tend to get a little bit uh, inflamed during the debate uh, last night during the the debate and the eventual vote on this too. Uh, Let's talk about the other side then. Uh, The Conservatives uh, not unexpectedly uh, voted against this Uh, and, and a number of different tactics and, well, some would characterize it as fear-mongering. Others would say it's a reality check, I guess, depending on which side of the fence you're on. Uh, but some of the comments from uh, from interim leader Candace Bergen and from Pierre Parlyev and others, uh, that this was an overreach, that they didn't have to go this far. What's your thought on that?
2: Yeah, I mean, no surprise that the Conservatives weren't going to support this. And I think they were, you know, they they've made this argument that this isn't something that the federal government had to get involved in, that they could have let this to provincial authorities, to local law enforcement, and the federal government could have played a support role, but without engaging the Emergencies Act. And so trying to paint the picture that the Prime Minister and the Federal Liberals are overstepping, overreaching, and that we should worry about that, not just for now but for what it could mean down the road if they seem to, you know, if, if they think that the Emergencies Act is a tool that they can pull out of that toolbox in the future. Now, it's a, it's a tricky position, I think, for the Conservatives to be in in some way, because as many people have pointed out, they are the party of law and order historically. And so it's odd to see if you are a Conservative voter who has traditionally been in that vein of believing in the rule of law and believing that there are consequences for breaking the law and expecting the leaders to stand up for that, it's a little jarring to see the Conservatives being not quite on the side of that and instead, you know, saying that, that this was a peaceful protest and or, you know, there were parts of it anyway that were peaceful. There were, there were times that we've seen Conservative MPs engage this fully and have photos taken and things like that and so i don't think the accountability is over for the conservatives they're going to get a lot of questions about how they handled this but i mean at this point they are the opposition no surprise that they would oppose what the liberals want to do and now they will i think continue to put a lot of pressure around when are you going to lift the emergencies act since the convoy is over and you know any further any you know any further extension of the emergence act emergencies act would be an intrusion
0: the theme, though, from that opposition, especially, as I say, from the Conservatives, but the other vocal critics, too, a number of commentators uh, who you know well, because you see them in Ottawa on a pretty consistent basis, uh, is that uh, they were concerned about abuses of this bill. Uh, not, Of course, the, the fact that they were even going to enact this, uh, I guess, bothered some of them. But they, well, what if this? What if? What if? What if? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I would suggest this is, God knows i got enough legal opinion from people on over the last 48 hours, about this. Uh, It seems to me as if there's an awful lot of checks and balances in this legislation uh, that just to remind our listeners, was actually drafted by the Conservatives in 1988 by the Maroni government and passed by the Parliament of that particular day too. So it's still got their their fingerprints all over this. But are, are you concerned about possible abuses? I mean, you know, they do talk about the fact that it's only in play for 30 days, which it, uh, that they, they have limited powers as to what they can do. Uh, there have to be reports back on situations like this. And, and these were all things, of course, that the Conservative government of the day put in there because they thought the War Measures Act Uh, was far too Mm -hmm. onerous.
2: Oh yeah, I mean, exactly. Like this, this is not the War Measures Act, nor is it an executive council, an executive order type of thing, right? This is a piece of legislation that was drafted and that was approved by parliament. And any use of this thing has to be approved by parliament. And there are checks and balances, like even the 30 day expiry date, you have to come back at that point if you want it to be extended. And this is a minority parliament. And so, to be perfectly honest, um, parliamentarians have the tools that they would need to stop this if that's what they wanted to do. There's no question about that. It annoys me sometimes, and I didn't, to be fair, I didn't hear Jigmeet Singh do this yesterday, but over the past several years since the prime minister and, and the liberals have been in a minority situation, oftentimes we hear the opposition say things like, well, I don't. we don't have confidence in the government. But we're not going to defeat them we're not going to go to elections so we're going to support them but we don't have confidence and i'm like now hold on you have responsibilities here too you can't tell us that you know you're going to kind of hold your nose and support a government that you don't have confidence in that's not your job as the opposition if you don't have confidence then walk up to the mic and say it and vote it and do something about it so like to me parliament's got all the tools they need to be able to stop this if that's what they want to do Also, obviously, you know, all eyes are on the government here, there's going to be huge pressure if there's any, you know, if it seems like they want to start to push this in directions that it shouldn't be going. There are going to be court cases over this. And so there'll be accountability from that perspective. There's going to be, you know, lots of, of people like us talking about this every day. So I mean, it's not like I think there's going to be things that are they're going to be getting away with in any big way. Now. I also think there's there's possibly parts of of the response that was that you know came to be from the Emergencies Act they may want to be thinking about whether some of this stuff should be moved into non-emergency legislation so should the federal government be able to respond to security threats in the parliamentary precinct well I think of course they should right they shouldn't have to go to an emergencies act to do this should FinTrack have more more uh, authority to be able to look into you know crowds crowdfunding and and things that have given support to the to the convoy right like well yeah probably and they should they shouldn't have to go to an emergencies act to do, to do it so those sorts of things we might see change as well
0: and well we've already seen that uh, and the reaction to that yesterday afternoon of course uh, two conservative mps started floating stories uh the constituents of theirs had their bank accounts frozen one uh, and it was uh mark Stahl, the uh, mp from british columbia uh, who talked about uh, somebody who, who he calls Breanne, a single mom from Chilliwack working a minimum wage job. She gave 50 bucks to the convoy and uh, ha- hasn't participated out of the way and says her bank account was frozen. And there's another, uh, as you know, Laurie, a, a Manitoba MP, similar situation, said that uh, she bought a T-shirt, this constituent, uh, for the truckers thing, and all of a sudden had mm-hmm. her bank accounts frozen. Uh, I know Bill Blair was on TV yesterday saying th- that didn't happen. We don't, and the RCMP even piped in and said the only thing information we've to the banks or the organizers or that were in Ottawa. We haven't done anything else with yeah. donations. So um, I, there's a lot of politicking going on here. And, and I guess, you know, people are going to hear those stories. And if they want to believe them because they don't like the government, I guess they're going to believe it.
2: Well, that's the thing. And the thing about trying to make claims around the financial piece and what the government is or isn't doing It's hard to prove or disprove that right we've got the RCMP saying that's not what's going on here. And so I'm you know how that will affect the debate but it's unfortunate that, you know, given the circumstances we're in that we see this just like blatant partisanship I know it's I mean, you know, I say that and of course there's blatant partisanship that's our system how do we avoid it. You know that's what people do but still. It's it's something that I think the federal government is gonna to have to deal with as it as, as it figures out like what what is the right way to be tackling the roots of these problems. Like the security piece on Parliament Hill has been difficult enough to sort out, but the piece around support for right-wing extreme content that is obviously transcending borders, that there's money coming from the US, that these you know, there's inspiration coming from the US. How do we manage this stuff? The federal government has been struggling. With managing content, online hate, you know, online, um, you know, like activity that is damaging to democracy, and you and I have talked about some of that stuff. This is this is at the heart of what the liberals have been trying to get their minds around legislatively, because it's really difficult to come up with a legislative path to managing this stuff. So we're seeing some of that too.
0: Uh, in our remaining moments here. Uh- The legislation says this has to be passed, first of all, by the Commons, and it did last night, but also by the Senate. Now, they haven't even started debating this yet. Uh, What's your read on what's going to happen there?
2: Yeah, I saw a tweet from uh, Senator Brazzo this morning, and he was saying, you know, whether we like it or not, the Senate is, you know, it's not the time, essentially, I'm paraphrasing kind of poorly here, but it's not, it's not, the this is not the right time for the Senate to go against the will of the democratically elected House. So they'll go through it and they will raise concerns, but I would be shocked if the Senate did anything other than pass it, because it's, you know, it would be a really um, difficult thing for unelected senators to explain to people, given that it's it's a very unusual moment.
0: Uh, with the rare exception, possibly, of that conservative senator that said the uh, citizens of Ottawa were a bunch of wimps for complaining about uh, what's going on for the last three weeks. Uh, he recanted okay. that and said that alcohol may have been involved, but uh, it's out there, so. <laughs> Yeah I, yeah. I know. Yeah. I
2: listened to that last night. That was shocking.
0: Yeah. Uh, Laurie, as always, thank you so much. Great to get your perspective on this. Uh, stay well and uh, we'll talk again soon because as they say, it ain't over yet.
2: That's definitely true. Thanks, Bill. Have a good day.
0: You too. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie university. You're listening to the bill Kelly show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to go back again and circle back to what happened in Ottawa over the last three weeks, really. Uh, And what happened in Windsor and what happened on the Alberta border and uh, and some of the other uh, places where protests, I'll use that term loosely, uh, had occurred over the last little while. And uh, it was because of the work of a number of journalists from all the networks and a number of different agencies that were on the scene uh, bringing live stories about what was going on. I mean, you know, your eyes are watching this as they're reporting on this. And uh, there's been some concern raised uh, by a number of different folks now about the treatment of those journalists. Certainly, by some of the protesters, and we saw that firsthand, especially as the uh, police tried to break up what was going on in Ottawa and in Windsor the week before that, of course. Uh, but amazingly enough, uh, the Canadian Association of Journalists, journalists rather, has now sent a letter to the Ottawa Police Service complaining about uh, what they say. Uh, was a lack of respect for journalists, right to report. That apparently there were some things that they were not allowed to report. There were some places uh, that they were not allowed to be in uh, during this police action over the weekend. Uh, and freedom of the press is, is, seems to be the theme of the letter. So let's talk about this in a broader sense. Uh, and to do that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Jeffrey Devorkin. Jeffrey, of course, is a senior fellow at Massey College. He's former director of journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough. An author of a book called "Trusting the News in a Digital Age," uh, Jeffrey. Pleasure to have you back on the program. Hope you're doing well these days.
1: I am. Nice to be with you, Bill.
0: Let me ask you about as, as you watched the coverage, and I did a lot of channel surfing, watching all three networks and uh, the Canadian networks, anyway, and 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 some of the other coverage that was going on. And of course, I read reams and reams of stories about this. Uh, but we saw, if, well, from that perspective, we saw an awful lot of the journalists who were on the scene uh as as the police action started on friday and going through the night as a matter of fact uh verbal abuse uh the, you know I, I i talked to sean o'shea from global about this and uh, he says one of the few times in his long long career that he's actually had to have security around him as he was doing an on-site report uh, that's uh not something journalists should be used to uh, but it's something that i guess they have to accept as part of the new reality sadly
1: well it's true and uh i was in contact with some of the reporters Uh, from the CBC who were on site and I noticed that a female reporter had a rather burly bodyguard and one of the male reporters said we all have them uh, because it's now become part of the deal where a news organization can't just send out a reporter on the street without some kind of protection and I think that this is an amazing development. I mean back in the day when I was assigning reporters to war zones, we would hire local fixers who were journalists who knew the terrain, could translate, and could act as a kind of bodyguard. At least to, if, if, if our journalists were being threatened, that the local person could calm down the crowd uh, speaking in whatever language was going at that point i'm i'm actually kind of shocked that this is happening now in north america but maybe i'm not i may be shocked but i'm not surprised because this has been building for quite some time the public's uh distrust and hostility towards the media and to journalists in particular is getting worse
0: and and i know a lot of people are going to point the finger at donald trump uh, but, but there's an argument to it. and i think you and i talked about this previously jeff Trump didn't start this. He certainly threw gasoline on the fire with the, the, quote, fake news, uh, unquote, uh, that he made so famous, and others have adopted that, used used it as their mantra right now. Uh, It's not fake news. It's news that the people that are upset about it would rather people not hear. That seems to be the the better definition and the more apt definition.
1: I think we have to take this seriously. There's a poll I saw today. I'm not sure who did the poll, but said that 61% of Canadians think that reporters, specifically journalism in general are biased and they're not telling the right story. I think we need to kind of dig into this uh, to find out to what, I mean, 61% of Canadians can't be all wrong. Let's have, let's put a closer eye on what we do as journalists uh, and try to figure out ways in which we can not placate the critics, but just do a better job. And one of the ways I've been thinking about this is to think about how the media responds to uh, events and does it in a way that it exacerbates uh, tension and anxiety. And I think that what I'm sensing, um, and maybe others are as well, is that the public wants a little more context. They don't just want the, uh, the hit and run news. They want the news that makes some sense to them. And because many news organizations, even the big ones, have been, in my opinion, hollowed out by the digital technology, because management at one point thought, well, we don't need all these bodies and all these expenses, we can just use the internet to better effect. And I don't think that's worked out very well. And I think what we're seeing now is the public's uh, understanding that the quality of the journalism has become uh, a mile wide and an inch deep, um, and that becomes a problem for how journalism is supposed to serve citizens, not just consumers.
0: Well, and that's that's the concern that I've had for quite some time, and and I'm 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 always you know concerned about the fact that you know, it seems that anybody who's got a cell phone with a camera in it now or has a Twitter account, uh, considers themselves to be a journalist. And they're the ones that are the truth tellers. And what they've now dubbed the mainstream media are the ones with all the biases. I, I, I don't know how many people I saw in the, in the groups that, that were on Parliament Hill over the weekend. Uh, everybody had a, a phone and everybody was you know videoing their version of what was going on. But that's the thing, Jeff, it was their version. Uh, You know, where's this, where is the objectivity? And, you know, everybody is bringing their own point of view to this and blaming, you know, the other guy whose point of view may be different from theirs is saying, well, they're telling a lie.
1: Well, that's exactly right, Bill, because what we're seeing now is the proliferation of opinion rather than reporting. And so when I saw all these folks in Ottawa holding up their cell phones, pointing them at the police pointing them at the, at, the, at the journalists, and then g- filling in behind with some kind of narrative about see how bad these people are. So how can uh, mainstream media, I don't like that term, but anyway, we'll use it for shorthand. Uh, how can the media do a better job in being more accountable and transparent? And I think that's the challenge now after the Ottawa occupation, uh, to figure out a way in which there is a better understanding among the journalists and among the public about what is the purpose of journalism, especially in these difficult times. And my sense is, is that um, I, think, I think the media, for all of its faults, needs to do a better job in one specific way, which is find out what people are really thinking not just uh, bloviate and pontificate from, uh, from uh, the editorial offices, but get out there and talk to people. One of the interesting things about the 2016 election, where everyone said Hillary Clinton was going to win the U.S. election uh, because all the polls said so, there was one media organization that went came out, went back and said, no, no it's going to be Donald Trump because we've been out there talking to the people, and that was the Los Angeles Times. They were the only newspaper that said that Hillary Clinton is going to lose. And the reason that they said that was all their reporters spread out around the United States, especially in the Midwest, and came back and said, they're not voting for Hillary. They're going to vote for Donald Trump. And I think that getting out there and doing less what I call low-hanging fruit of weather, traffic, and crime I mean, there's a, absolutely a place for that. But to get out and do the other kind of journalism, which is what are people thinking about? How are they? Why are they thinking this way? And how can we report this in a way that doesn't necessarily just throw more oxygen on, on the wrong kinds of ideas, but kind of try to understand where these ideas come from?
0: Well, exactly, and and I, you're absolutely right because I mean, I have this discussion with a number of different people who uh, they may find the shocking every now and then. I, you know, I, I express an opinion on this program that some people disagree with, uh, and I'm good with that. You know, that's fine. That's what the show is all about—an exchange of ideas and opinions. And uh, you know, if, if everybody agreed with everything I said on this program, it'd be pretty boring. Uh, you want that sort of dialogue, and you want that sort of debate that goes on, but you know, to demonize somebody with a contrary point of view uh, is is somewhat problematic because it polarizes. And that that pretty much negates any debate or discussion you can have, doesn't it?
1: Absolutely. And I think we have to figure out a way in which we can come together, to use that cliche, but to do it in a way that doesn't necessarily legitimate hateful ideas. Um, And I think that what's happened in the States uh, and maybe happening now in Canada is this idea that Every opinion counts and all kinds of specialism, specializations and expertise are to be dismissed because they're not popular. And I think that so we're coming into an uh, we're revisiting an old argument Uh, after World War One. There was a great argument in American journalism between whether the United States should have gone to war. Uh, in Europe in 1914. And one of the thinkers around this, a guy called Walter Walter uh, Lippmann, excuse me, Walter Lippmann, uh, said, no, we need to show more leadership in journalism. We need to point out where the best ideas are and who has these ideas. And he was basically an elitist. He His ideas were opposed by a philosophy professor at Columbia University in New York called John Dewey, who happened to invent the Dewey Decimal System for libraries. And Dewey said, no, the problem with journalism isn't to be more elitist, it's to have more journalism. So this, in a pre-internet, a pre-digital age, was exactly the same issue that we're confronting now. Do we listen to the people? Do we listen to the elites? How do we get them to listen to each other? And that's, to me, is the role of journalism right now, is to figure out a way that we can, we can talk to one another in a more constructive way. I know that sounds a bit Pollyanna-ish and naive, but that's the kind of guy I am.
0: Well, and if you don't have those goals, you're never going to attain them. I mean you've got to you know <laughs> reach beyond what we've got. I, I got a few minutes left here and i I want to ask you about the letter that uh, uh, that the the Canadian Association of Journalists have written to uh, Ottawa Police services uh basically complaining i mean we saw from the other side of the fence, of course, some of the protesters I think mistreating people that were simply there to to show pictures and tell stories, but they were also complaining about the way police were handling journalists, not allowing them into certain areas, basically blocking them off. Uh, you know, you mentioned earlier the best way to try to curb this is to is to have more people to tell those stories and to listen to people. When police set up restrictions like this, and I'm sure you've run into this in your long career, uh, where they say you can't cover this or no, you can't go over there, you can't talk to that person. How prohibitive is that to, to get the facts out?
1: Well, it can be quite prohibitive. Um, that, to me, in my experience, happens more in Canada than in the U.S. Because in the States, they have this... Uh, obsession, some would say fetish, about the First Amendment and the right of, of of a free press. In Canada, we have that, but not as deeply entrenched as they do in, in the States. And in my time at the CBC, there were a number of instances where we were covering political meetings and demonstrations, and the cops were there, and they tried to stand in front of the cameras, that sort of thing. And so you put, <laughs> what we did is we we had our law department on high alert to say, if there is something like this, we have to go in there and threaten them with a lawsuit or threaten them with an injunction that the cops can't do this if the journalists are just engaged in the normal uh, gathering of information that is, that is something that they ordinarily would do. And that usually pushed the cops back, but there is a tension, there's no question. And I think part of the issue at, in Ottawa was, this was a unique event. Uh, in Canadian history, Uh, politically, culturally, militarily, in police terms. And so nobody was, I think, really sure about how to deal with it. Uh, I think uh, journalism in Canada hasn't had to deal with these mass events in the same way that the American journalists have have been dealing with it for quite some time now, especially in the Trump and post-Trump era.
0: Well, yeah, and maybe it, that may just be because we don't have that much experience in it. But and I don't necessarily think there's a rule book saying here, but there have been some egregious examples of that. I'm sure you recall the story from a couple of years ago in the Hamilton area, where a videographer, I believe it was from Global News uh, at the time, uh, was trying to cover a story, and uh, the police officer on the scene said, "No, you can't film that." And he said, "Of course I can." Uh, he wrestled him to the ground. And he was arrested. I think subsequently they had to drop the charges, and there was disciplinary action. Uh, but you know where is that line and who gets to set that line? That seems to be the question.
1: Well, maybe the role of management might be now that things have calmed down slightly. The role of management is to get together and meet with police forces and reinforce the idea of that the value of a free press in Canada is an essential aspect of democracy and not just wait until after the event, a post facto uh, reaction, we need to talk about this with the police and with governments now.
0: Uh, and that's got to be part of the dialogue, too. I mean, it, there's a lot to be uh, learned from from what's gone on in Ottawa and I guess Windsor the last uh, few weeks, especially. And uh, just as they're saying that maybe we have to have a reevaluation of uh, of our politicos and how they handle protests, et cetera, uh, I'm sure everybody, including journalism, we need to get the story out there. and, uh, I know I talked to a number of reporters that are now returning from Ottawa since uh, things seem to have simmered down a little bit, who are shaken by by the way they, they were treated uh, by you know especially by the, the protesters, but to a certain extent by police as well, and and that's got to change. I mean, if you want the truth, you've got to allow journalism to to flourish and to tell those stories and let people make up their own minds. That that would be my take on it, anyway.
1: Well, I agree with you completely, and and we are in kind of uncharted territory now. We haven't seen anything like this. Or well, maybe since uh, the War Measures Act or OCA or some of the, uh, the demonstrations around uh, Indigenous rights. Uh, but it's, it's escalated to a certain extent, and we're going to see more of it, not less.
0: Jeff, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Uh, stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks for this today.
1: You're welcome, Bill.
0: Take care jeffrey devorkin of course from uh, university of toronto scarborough an author of the book called trusting the news in a digital age
3: you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast
0: on 900 chml this is something that's been simmering for quite some time uh, about a possible invasion uh, by the russians into ukraine uh, some would suggest it may have already started with some of the uh, moves that were made over the weekend by Vladimir Putin. To try to give us some context to this, uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent uh, with Global News in Washington. Uh, Reggie, as always, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Good morning. I want to ask you, first of all, about about uh, Putin over the weekend. Uh, we know that uh, he actually uh, had a, a meeting of the Russian Security Council, which was televised, by the way. and. Uh, I I know a couple of commentators have suggested that he actually goaded a number of members of the council into uh, making statements to to validate his idea about uh, recognizing the independence of of two what they call uh, rogue uh, provinces, I guess, in the eastern end of Ukraine, uh, which, of course, they did. Uh, Does this signify the beginning of the invasion?
3: I mean, it it very well could. Uh, I think it's worth pointing out, number one, that Security Council meeting that had been convened by Vladimir Putin broadcast to uh, the Russian, you know, public, but also to the broader world as a whole Mm -hmm. uh, wasn't actually live. It had been pre-taped many, many hours before. as had been uh, determined by observers who were paying close attention. Uh, But ultimately, this decision um, was almost expected. Uh, His his parliament had primed and prepped him uh, for days to get him to recognize these breakaway regions in eastern uh, Ukraine. We've heard uh, from Russian President Vladimir Putin numerous times saying that what What's taking place in those regions uh, is akin to a quote-unquote genocide. uh, Trying to justify any reasoning for his troops to move across the border. And then in the last 24 hours, uh, video not verified yet shows that there have been columns of hardware making their way towards and over the border with Russia uh, and Ukraine. The White House now calling it an invasion. It's not a full invasion, according to the State Department, but this is a significant move to call it that because it does pave the way for um, economic sanctions to be placed by the United States, by the European Union, on the Kremlin.
0: But the, the big move here, I guess, is—I mean, as you mentioned and as you've been reporting, uh, these these what they call rogue states now uh, have been under uh, control of uh, of Moscow-backed militia since 2014. Uh, but if Russian boots are on the ground in those areas right now, uh, that I guess is is a de facto in, invasion. Uh, and it, it seems as if the strategy here might be that we're going to take Ukraine piece by piece, as opposed to a massive invasion. I guess this—any clarity on that from what you're hearing, Reggie?
3: look, it's a broad fear that this is going to expand beyond the two uh, regions that are backed by uh, Russian or held at least by Russian-backed rebels. I think we need to point out uh, for a sense of clarity here that when we see and hear that Russian troops uh, and military and hardware are moving into those regions, uh, that there have been Russian military assets on the ground in Luhansk and in Donetsk uh, for the last eight years. This is a strongly Russian-backed Region. Uh, this is now just an increase uh, in mobility to have more uh, military assets brought into the region. The more broad fear beyond that is uh, this potential for the Russian military to move beyond just Luhansk and, and, and Donetsk into the kind of oblast, the region that they're in, which is still controlled by the Ukrainian government. If that happens, you now actually have uh, no longer these breakaway regions. You have sovereign Ukraine territory that Russian military will be moving towards. And within the last 15 minutes, Bill, out of Moscow, we've heard that Russian President Putin has asked lawmakers at the Kremlin. Uh, for permission to use force outside of Russia, that could pave the way for a broader attack, for a piece by piece attack uh, to potentially move towards Kiev, up towards Belarus, or to move south towards uh, towards Crimea, creating you know a land bridge if they're able to to capture more territory south towards Mariupol.
0: If this sounds vaguely familiar, I guess to some of our listeners, it's it's almost the same uh, justification, if I can use that phrase, Reggie, that they used uh, during the last invasion. Uh, and then and, and to Crimea, of course, Crimea as well. You know, the, hey, these are our people. They speak our language. They they share our politics. So it's only natural for us to be there. And it seems as if he's trying to use that same argument once again uh, vis-a-vis Ukraine.
3: And look, he used that argument during that that, that very kind of wide-ranging and, and wild speech that he made uh, late Monday night Russia time, where he, he talked about the fact that Ukraine exists because it was created by Russia, attempting to say that, that the policies that took place under the USSR and back during the Russian Empire are the only reason that Ukraine is in existence today, and then pushed back to say that its independence uh, is quote-unquote madness, saying that the independence of Ukraine uh, isn't justified because it's run by a, uh, a puppet regime. It is a Western colony, or a U.S. colony, as he put it. So he's really trying to use any kind of justification he can to say that Ukraine is ultimately a part of Russia. It should be a part of Russia. It is a part of Russia uh, and that his interests in the region uh, are to return Russian interests back into Ukraine. This is where that real concern is that rules based order uh, is in jeopardy across parts of Eastern Europe that used to be under the Soviet flag.
0: Well, we know that after the, uh, the the as you say the the pre-tape meeting with uh, Putin and his council, uh, Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky uh, summoned an emergency meeting of his National Security and Defense Council. Uh, as you were reporting last week, Reggie, uh, the, the Ukrainian President uh, last week was basically downplaying the threat of an uh, imminent invasion uh, by the Russians. Uh, has he changed his mind on that? Do you think?
3: I, I mean, he, it's possible that he's changed his mind internally, but he's still projecting. Uh, a sense of calm outwards. Last night uh, in, a, in a conversation with uh, with, with President Biden, uh, there was an understanding of what's going on, but there was no sense uh, of urgent kind of stress put on the country. He made a point of, of taking to social media last night to address the nation and said that uh, they don't intend to give anything up uh, and that people shouldn't have a sleepless night. So he really is still trying to uh, instill a sense of calm Uh, across uh, a nation that is ultimately watching things play out in real time, unsure and unclear of where this is going to go.
0: Uh, Zelensky also uh, referenced uh, what's uh, known as the Budapest Memorandum uh, that was signed in 1994, which I I guess basically gave Ukraine its independence on the proviso uh, that they would give up Soviet uh, nuclear weapons that were on their soil uh, they were supposed to be independent. And I guess that's really the foundation for what they think is their justification for being an, uh, a, a separate and, and sovereign nation. Uh, does Russia pay any attention to that? I mean, there were a number of com- countries that sign- signed on to the Budapest Memorandum, uh, and it's uh, it doesn't seem to be something that's going to sway Russia one way or another here.
3: Yeah, I mean, look, a couple of days ago, we heard President Zelensky make comments uh, about nuclear weapons, you know, mentioning kind of off the cuff that this could always be a potential down the line. Uh, he was criticized, uh you know, pretty widely for making that kind of a comment without really backing it up with anything. Uh, but it was picked up by Russian President Vladimir Putin last night, who talked about the fact that Ukraine could have so-called, quote-unquote, weapons of mass destruction. And if that were to happen that that would change how he views not only Ukraine, but how he also views uh, Europe and that the world would change forever. Uh, there is nothing to say that Ukraine is, is kind of covertly or secretly creating or in a position like Iran is to be uh, enriching uranium to, to create any kind of nuclear weapon. Uh, I think this is just an opportunity of the Kremlin to drum up fear within the Russian population who may be worried about any kind of invasion and seeing that their troops may ultimately be coming home uh, on, uh, on a gurney, uh, or, or, worse than that. Uh, but I think that this was simply just a way to further poke a bear, to further provide justification, to say that Ukraine is an unstable country, uh, and therefore it needs to be returned back to this iron grip uh, of the Kremlin because in, 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 the eyes of Vladimir Putin, uh, Ukraine simply just shouldn't be existing. So anything they're doing is not in the interest uh, of the, of the, you know, the, the ethnic Russians that live in the country.
0: And, and are they using the the civil conflicts that are going on in Donetsk and Luhansk as as justification for that? As, as the, you know, these are Russian people that are in peril. We need to come to their assistance.
3: And, and look, this is this is a, a play that he has made before. It is how we ultimately wound up with Crimea being annexed out of Ukraine uh, and brought into kind of the Russian fold here, trying to say that there is a risk here for Russian interests, for Russian people to be wiped off the map. To hear President Putin using the word genocide, uh, it invokes a fear across his country that Russian history is potentially at stake here and being wiped off the map, despite the fact that that's not being carried out through eastern parts of Ukraine. It is widely seen that any of the uh, uh, causes of violence that have taken place over the last several days have likely been false flag operations carried out by Russian-backed separatists throughout the region, but simply using it as pretext to pave the way for a potential uh, invasion. This is all a game of semantics to try and make Russia's moves, uh, seem like they're okay on the world stage, but most experts and most of the West are pushing back saying any kind of move uh, that's made that puts Ukraine's sovereignty in jeopardy is ultimately going to wind up costing the uh, costing the Russian government.
0: Reggie, there's a number of different things going on here, and we can only speculate, I guess, about some of the motivations that may be driving Putin at this stage. Uh, but one of them I, I would think most certainly, and you guys have been talking about this too, and you're reporting, is the North Crimea Canal Uh, which was actually built by the Russians uh, back, I guess, a number of years ago. Uh, Ukraine actually cut that off, as I understand it. And and that may be uh, one of the reasons why Putin is eyeing Ukraine, simply because he wants to reestablish that that water source, especially if they're trying to do something about agriculture in their western parts of, 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 of Russia right now.
3: I mean, look, uh, it's possible. Uh, uh, it's possible that Russia is simply looking at uh, at, at Ukraine as a whole, understanding that it, it's a big footprint. Uh, there's a lot of opportunities here for uh, Russia to move in uh, and be able to take uh, any resources that exist throughout uh, Ukraine, uh, no matter where it is in the country, and bring that back into Russia uh, without any expense uh, incurred on that expense, obviously, uh, to be incurred uh, on Ukraine. There's, there's any number of reasons. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to get into to the mind of Vladimir Putin because he hard, holds his cards to his chest so closely that he, he oftentimes doesn't inform his own senior advisors as to what his next move is going to be, uh, which is where some of that concern is among the West, that they simply are trying to call things out in real time as they see it, because that's the only way to try and force Vladimir Putin to move a step ahead of where he actually wanted to be. Let's talk
0: about the information or as some people have characterized the disinformation war about some of the the, the stuff that's coming out of Russia right now to try to justify this. Uh, You know, as you mentioned, he's talking genocide. He's talking about uh, the uh, imminent invasion of Ukraine into Russia uh is 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 that working is it selling in russia these days i mean this is a very disgruntled population right now because of the existing sanctions that have been in place for quite some time uh are are they are they starting to rally behind putin or are they skeptical do you think
3: look uh you know polling that exists uh within russia uh has oftentimes uh you know been hard to, to decipher but there are uh, a growing number uh of people who are coming out not speaking out in in any kind of dissent towards uh, the Putin regime, but simply saying that going to war in Ukraine is potentially not going to be the best. You know, move or the best play here, uh, because again, there is a chance here that we see members of the Russian military coming home dead. Uh, we see this having an impact uh, on the average family in Russia. But oftentimes, these sanctions that you were mentioning—they've—they've they've, they've hit the Russian economy, but they've mostly hit uh, the oligarchs. They've—they've they've hit people within the inner circle uh, of Vladimir Putin. This time around, the sanctions could potentially be much more problematic and much farther uh, spread across uh, the Russian, uh, 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 Russian land, uh, in that going after banks, going after Russia's access to the Western financial system, going after Russia's ability to be able to get a hold of Western made infrastructure, something like semiconductors. This could be problematic across the entire country and could lead to, um, not quite a revolt, but a much more vocal part of the population to say, maybe this isn't worth it. Uh, Especially, you know, knowing this morning now that Germany is walking away from uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, also going to have serious ramifications for the average person in Russia, because this was something that was going to create not only jobs, but pump billions of dollars back into the Russian economy that has now, for now, been halted and frozen because of this aggressive behavior.
0: And as you reported a little while ago, I mean, Jen Psaki, of course, the spokesperson for the the Biden administration, uh, suggested that as of this morning, they have now extended uh, sanctions against these two uh, rogue states that are basically under Russian control right now. Uh, They were threatening to do this with Russia. They've already done it here. Is this the first salvo of the Biden administration to try to, to get Putin to back off?
3: Absolutely it is. Uh, It was step one. It was an executive order signed by the president uh, on Monday, and we are anticipating that there is going to be some kind of wide-ranging round of sanctions that are going to be announced by the White House at some point later today. The president did not have uh, a media availability uh, about the Ukraine-Russia situation on his schedule until about an hour ago, and we've now been told that he'll be speaking uh, around 1 or 2 o'clock Uh, in order to give an address. And it's widely expected here that we are going to see much stronger, much swifter, much more severe consequences when it comes to uh, these sanctions on Ukraine that go far beyond uh, dealing with financial transactions with people who may be located in these self-declared republics uh, in eastern Ukraine. This is simply going to be part and parcel with uh, the sanctions that were announced by the uh, United Kingdom, with sanctions that are being put together by the European Union right now. This is an all-out effort by the West And try to bring Russia back from the ledge by saying, look, well, your economy right now uh, and the United States is really going to try to take uh, the head of the table here by saying, look, we can go after you uh, and we fully intend to. We just have to wait to see what the president's going to say in a couple of hours.
0: Exactly. Well, as you've been reporting, I mean, Putin has obviously drawn a line in the sand here, and it sounds as if this past weekend he's moved that line a little bit closer, and it's going to be interesting to see just how the Biden administration uh, responds. Uh, as always, uh, Reggie, thank you for this, and uh, we look forward to your reporting on uh, Global National about this uh, very fluid situation. Appreciate the time today. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900-CHML.